Hello, welcome to Typewriter Talks. This podcast features interviews with writers, poets, and other bookish folks. My name is Maureen McDowell, and I am the founder and executive director of Keep St. Pete Lit, which is a literary arts organization based in St. Petersburg, Florida. On Typewriter Talks, we discuss all kinds of writerly topics, hoping to show you that there is not one right way to be a writer. Today, we are happy to welcome Barbara Riddle. Born and raised in New York, Barbara now lives and writes in two places, downtown St. Petersburg, Florida, and in rural Maine in the town of Millinocket. Barbara has worked as a dog walker, artist model, and biochemist, but prefers writing fiction above all. In 2021, she served as guest fiction editor of the journal Please See Me, devoted to improving communication between healthcare professional providers and patients through fiction, poetry, and nonfiction narratives. Her writing has appeared in many publications, including Ambit, Kayak, Fiction International, and Westview News. She writes a column for Atticus Review, a graphic memoir about her bohemian Greenwich Village girlhood, Lovers and Latchkeys, is in progress. And her coming-of-age novel, The Girl Pretending to Read Rilke, was named one of the best indie debut novels of 2019 by Kirkus Review. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you, Maureen. It's fantastic to be here from rainy Maine. <laughs> oh, yes, we are in... It's just started to go down into the 80s <laughs> in Florida. So we're, all, we're so excited. It's our turn to get a hurricane. So we may have Hurricane Lee at the end of this week. We'll, we shall see. So. Yeah. Dennis Phillips, our hurricane guy, was like, it's going to be a nor'easter up there for you guys. Yep. So. Yep. Well, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not right on the coast. So unless my big uh, northern red oak comes down on the house, things should be okay. <laughs> Well, let's hope that doesn't happen. Yes. Hope that doesn't happen. Yeah, she's a lovely tree about 200 feet tall, and I dearly hope she survives everything. So she will. She will. So the last time we talked to you, uh, you reminded me, was December 2020 for the typewriter talks that we did during COVID. So that was quite a while ago. So tell us what you're working on right now. Okay. Well, um, a number of things happened um, that the adult school where I was teaching in St. Pete, Tomlinson Adult Learning Center closed down uh, in December, 2021. And that moved my quote retirement to Maine up quite a few years. So I decided just to move up here and inhabit the fixer upper that I had bought for the way future and the way future became the present moment. So for the last year and a half, I've been doing two things. I've been working as an AmeriCorps member and writing. And AmeriCorps is kind of like a domestic Peace Corps. And I had a part-time job as a project organizer working on age-friendly projects, which really got me out into the community working on things like a food desert, lack of transportation, um, all kinds of uh, community events to foster thriving and aging in place, which is one of the, the things that AARP and the whole country is now talking about uh, as we age as a country, aging in place and keeping um, contact with your old neighborhood in familiar places. How can we make it healthy and financially viable for people? So that's kept me in the real world. And then in terms of my writing, which I've been trying to do alongside of that other effort, uh, including starting a farmer's market, which has been my most exciting project. Um, 
I was uh, asked to do a column for Atticus Review, which is an online literary journal, and it's called The View from Maine. And that came out of meeting the editor at a flash fiction workshop at um, Writers in Paradise. Uh, John Dufresne had a wonderful uh, seminar and I was asked, the editor read, I wrote an obituary for my good friend, Barbara Ehrenreich, who died a year ago, almost to the day. Um, she was a writer uh, who wrote Nickel and Dimed among many, many other books. Oh, and wow. we, yeah, we had been college roommates and kept in touch through the years. And so I spent a week in my pajamas writing a memory piece for her because I felt what I was reading in the New York Times and other places didn't really capture her. And I, I really was happy with the piece and I submitted it to Atticus and they published it. But then after that, they said, would you like to write a column? So I said, okay, I'll write a column. Oh, cool. so <laughs> yeah, cool. yeah. And it basically can be about anything I want. It's supposed to be about once a month. And it, what it has helped me do is focus my reading a little bit, focus my thoughts about why I like the writers that I like and what writing tips have been helpful to me. And then maybe a short excerpt from something I'm writing. And it's been really um, demanding, but actually satisfying because I get to do a little bit of a political rant when I'm in despair about the war in Ukraine or other things. I can I can shape my thoughts and put it out there. So that's been really positive. Um, but I also, I applied for a Maine Arts Commission um, individual artist grant this year because I have been a full-time resident for more than a year. So fingers crossed, I'll hear about that this September. That's a small amount of money to use. However, I would need to manage my life, but it would be nice credibility to get that. So I'm waiting to hear about that. And um, I'm working on a new novel, which I'm really excited about, um, set in Maine. Tell us about that. Tell us about that. Okay. <laughs> um, well, it's not me. I'm not the main character, but it is a sequel to The Girl Pretending to Read Rilke. And it's a woman trying to tie up loose ends in her life. Uh, she's living in Maine and she invites her boyfriend from 50 years ago, who's been married and they haven't kept in touch that much, but they have a little bit. His wife has died recently and she invites him to come up to Maine to see her. And she's having second thoughts about why the heck she did this and what it could all mean. But I just threw myself into it as a potential situation to see what other things would come out of it. And I'm having the best time ever writing. <laughs> um, so are, you, are you illustrating it? No, no, this is a novel. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm thinking, I'm sorry, I, re, I read it wrong, like a graphic memoir. I was thinking of um, no, this is a, Yeah, this is a novel, um, but I'm along <laughs> in parallel. I, I feel like I'm catching up. I, I feel like I lost a lot of years somewhere in the middle of raising my daughter and other things, but I am working on a graphic memoir about growing up in Greenwich Village. Okay. And, yeah, and I've been, um, it's been really fun. I had written about 30 short chapters and now I'm illustrating them and I'm having so much fun doing that as well. Um, actually, I had taken a workshop in graphic memoir at uh, Studio 620 about four years ago. Oh, how and, cool. Yeah, with Nicole Hollander, who is a very well-known cartoonist from Chicago. And it was so 
uh, stimulating and um, supportive that I I kept with the drawings I had done and I was able to, over the past year, there's not much to do in Millinocket, let me tell you. <laughs> it's very, um, if you have the discipline and the mental strength to survive without any social life and hardly any restaurants or uh, there's, you can get a lot done. But anyway, um, I was part of an artist co-op, artist and writers co-op. And when I did open houses on Saturdays, I would bring my my drawing pad. So I got one drawing a week done for about a year, you know, so more or less. All yeah. the different things that you do. Well, you know what, when you have, St. Pete has so many temptations. We mm -hmm. really have almost nothing here right now. Although a lot of people are working to bring the town back because it, the, the paper mill shut down in 2008 and the whole town collapsed. The, the whole economy had depended on the, the Great Northern paper, mm -hmm. which uh, printed the New York Times and all kinds of things. Um, but the town is still coming back. It's kind of like St. Pete when I first moved there in 2007 when Central was yeah. about to completely close down. I seem to have a predilection for, <laughs> for these kinds of places because you feel the energy. and. Yeah. St. Pete is now just a bullet train of, of things happening, but Millinocket is, is about where St. Pete was in 2007, you know. Um, but I'm um, the number of community efforts going on and I'm trying to be part of as many as I can. Um, but I would say the most difficult thing is not getting feedback, not being in an active writers group, like, you know, uh, Keep St. Pete Lit was so good yeah. about doing those kinds of workshops. And um, they're just, it, the people here have too much um, on their plate in terms of just surviving. That's yeah. not really happening. Although there's some wonderful writers in Maine, uh, um, Monica Wood, you know, Elizabeth Strout. I heard Elizabeth Strout do the keynote speech last year at Writers in Paradise. Um, and Maine has a tradition of supporting their writers, uh, theoretically. More of the activity is occurring on the coast, you know, in places like Portland and Bangor. And, but um, I'm hopeful, and I actually predict in five years, things will be really different here, uh, if, if I survive. <laughs> You know, it's it, it it's good. It's really good in terms of no distractions. And I'm getting a lot of reading done. A lot, a lot of reading done. Um, did I say I'm getting a lot of? Reading yeah, done? yeah, you got a lot of. Reading. <laughs> yeah. you did, you, yes. you, from what I remember, it was like you decided that you didn't want to be in St. Pete anymore, and you looked at uh, where affordable small towns were. Is that yes. correct? Yes. Yeah. And also and that had the little art component. You know, there was an art gallery here, and there was a, a feeling of energy, a number of different groups are getting together to say, how can we use the beautiful natural surroundings uh, better and more meaningfully to help uh, bring people here, you know, what they call it sustainable tourism. Um, yeah. So they're very thoughtful people who, who don't want to at all um, spoil what we have, which is incredibly beautiful and wonderful um you wish but, we had done that in saint pete and curated it better yeah yeah, yeah. um the <laughs> the height limit for development here is three stories so <laughs> that's where grill is Pasa grill beach the height limit yeah. and it's wild now though if any old buildings that get knocked down there's one three-story apartment building 
and they would have to make the bottom floor like flood resistant. So it actually only be able to be two stories. So it's yeah. like they couldn't even make their money back if they were to like knock it down and use the space. Yeah, well, that's the conundrum. We have yeah. we need housing here and because there's a lot of old housing stock, like my house is built in 1910 and needs a lot of work still, but older people cannot keep these houses up. So they we need new affordable housing. And what happens is you get a grant from the state of Maine. So it's subsidized. The, the construction is subsidized, you know, and then the rents are kept affordable. There's one new building going up that's three stories, you know. And also, I could bore you to death with all the stuff about what they call accessory dwelling units, which is also an issue in St. Pete, helping yeah. people have a unit where a caretaker or a parent could live you on top of your garage or legalizing yeah. in uh, Old Northeast has that. And, yeah, because yeah. they built a lot of those after the yeah. war for housing for soldiers and stuff. But that's a really good idea, I think, because it, it doesn't change the character of the neighborhood. You keep the old housing stock. And so there's a lot going on about changing the zoning to make that more possible. So it's also I, I, very helpful for artists that that kind of. Oh, yeah. Housing. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what we're really like. I live in a four unit apartment building in St. Pete and like there's no way that I could like if I moved out of this building, they would update it and I would not be able to afford to live here right now. Yeah. So, and exactly. it's like my rent's going up like a hundred dollars every, you know, every year. And I mean, that's a, that's a problem being creatives, especially like in St. Petersburg. Oh yeah. We helped create this drive to people to move here. And then I we're know. Out. I know there. So I know communities yeah. should anticipate that and they should build in some kind of bonus. To I know. You know, really, the artists share in the increase in equities. <laughs> there should be a way. Speaking of which, right next door to me is a big old house that just went on the market. Needs work, but it would be a perfect writer's residency center for workshops and like oh two or three people uh, <laughs> a month each could be there. You know, I'm I mean, going to move to Maine. Okay. You know, it's right next door to me. It used my house and that one used to be owned by the same family. And I brought. Wow. There's a man who started something called the Boreal Theater, which is a community theater in about the size of um, <clears throat> the um, the new little cinema downtown in St. Pete, Greenlight Cinema. Yeah, yeah. I brought him over yesterday to look at it, and I said, "Couldn't we make this into a cultural center and an artist residency, and I, there could be workshops here?" And we both realized it probably just needs too much work. I haven't totally given up on it. But, you know, something like the Stephen King Foundation would be a place to contact because he's a real um, generous person in, in terms of the arts. But, I mean, I know five to eight years from now, there'll be a film festival, there'll be a playwriting festival. I mean, Sundance started very small, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, so, and also, you know, maybe somebody who's listening wants to, exactly, <laughs> you yeah. know, put the word out. Um, um, how it, has I, it changed? Oh, well, go ahead. Oh, no, no. I just feel it in my bones. I can see it. I can see the people sitting around the table. You know, I just, it's like I walk in and I feel it working, but I just can't take it on by myself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, if anyone's listening, <laughs> you can guess how much the building is for a two story, I can't I can't two imagine. garages and six car parking in the driveway opposite the library, three blocks from the main street and the post office and everything. Guess how much? How much? 123,000. Oh my gosh. I know. Yeah, you could get houses <laughs> like that 
when I was growing up here in St. Pete, it's crazy. And now they're a million. It's really wild how that happens. How I, have, I haven't given up actually. I mean, I can't do it by myself. I mean, I thought about selling my Florida condo and buying this and then I cannot do that. I would, you know, but I, if I could get some people interested, I haven't given up because I can just feel it in my bones that how great it would be. But anyway, go ahead. Well, how has, how has changing from writing in Florida? Has it, because you write a lot about your childhood in New York, but has, has Maine infused into your writing? Because sense of place is so strong. Very much so. And partly because when I first came, I read as much as I could fiction and nonfiction. I read a book called Milltown about the toll that the toxic waste took on people in a small town in Maine. Very, very good book. The woman now is world known all over the world and she's a fellow at the Radcliffe Institute. And, you know, but, and I read old things like The Beans of Egypt, Maine, and I read Monica Wood's short stories and I've read all of Elizabeth Strout and so, but none of those really deal with the current situation, which is a mill town that's coming back and all the, uh, and also the drug problem in the background, the opioid problem, the overdoses, the alcoholism, the injuries from the mill, the very, very absolute up-to-date situation in Maine. It's not the land of lobsters and lighthouses, not here in the woods. Uh, we're about an hour from the coast from Bangor. So that's what I'm looking at, trying to, I'm a fish out of water and I'm not trying to become an expert in any way, but I'm trying to look at it with, as they say, with, you know, beginner's eyes, as they say in, in the Zen sense that what what strikes me that other people are used to and, and have been inured to and then can't be changed or don't want to change. So I'm trying to very delicately both look at how I can be helpful, but also what, what I'm learning. And I've never lived in a small blue collar community before, you know, I've come from New York city and San Francisco and Boston and St. Pete. So it's been very humbling and, um, I I have a, it's been like being in a foreign country, Maureen. It really has yeah. been, you know, yeah, but um, it's so, ahead, so, so fruitful for writing because you need new material and, you know, and I can't keep up with all the new, I mean, for example, starting the farmer's market has been something I've never taken on before, something that big and practical helping vendors set up and communicating with the Amish community. They don't use any electronics. So communicating by phone and and encouraging them to bring their produce to the market and just interacting with a whole different community, even within the community of Maine, the Amish community is separate, you know? So it's like so much material so much material. So much material. And and I hope I can do justice to it, really. That's my my hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm thinking about um, uh, Canton, North Carolina. I lived there for a while and there was a paper mill there and my rent was like $3.25 a month in the, in the late 90s. And um, their paper mill just shut down like within the last year. Oh, and gosh. I'm also thinking yeah. about, and it's, it's, there's a bookstore now there and restaurants are coming in because Asheville's so pricey. It's about you know, 25, 20 minutes outside of Asheville. So it's already like people are starting to like take it over because the mills. Yeah. 
but also you're, it made me think of David Joy's writing and he writes a lot about the Appalachian region and the, the, you know, drug epidemic and, um, he might be, yeah, and and Barbara Kingsolver has a new novel, Demon Copperhead, which I have not read, but I heard a really wonderful interview with her, I think maybe Fresh Air with Terry Gross, and she talked about people's misapprehensions about Appalachia and yeah, yeah. so so it's a, it's just it's it's like Florida I mean these small towns there's so many stories that yeah that come out of just writing about small towns and yeah because it's populated by people and people are complex and they're complicated and um, I'm writing about a book about my father who just passed away just like letters to him just kind of unpacking who he is because I don't really know a lot of who he is. And I still have a lot of questions about what made him tick, but that's just one person. And I'm like, so with a town of populated of all these different types of people. Yep. Um, yep. And have you, have you read Mary Carr? On, no, um, no. But I was thinking Liars of Empire Falls, that book. I can't, that Paul Newman was in the movie. Um, Empire but, Falls is Richard Rosso, right? Richard Rosso, yes, but he is but that book Mary Carr writes a, a memoir. She's a specialist in memoir, and she's wrote Liars Club is her most famous one, and then Cherry was another one. But she also has a compendium of how to write memoir. But I would ho- highly recommend dipping into her if if you want to write memoir at all thank about you, your thank dad. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. So what does a typical day look for you look like for you as a writer? Well, having just finished AmeriCorps, now I make my own schedule. Um, I try to start around nine o'clock and I, I use the uh, what they call the Pomodoro method, which is I set a timer for 45 minutes. So it's like, I hope I work longer than that, but then I don't beat myself up. And then you feel really great when you go and you know walk around for 10 minutes after. But if you if you continue resetting it, you can get quite a, few, a bit done. But it's not so daunting when you you see it as a small piece to start with. But I'm trying to work on my novel every day to, for continuity. Mm-hmm. And then um, I I eat at home because there's really nothing open that that's worth going to. So I cook, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner at home. But I'm also working on. Um, a collection, say I might work on it before lunch, of prose poems about Maine. That, yeah, that I'm really excited about. I think I'm going to apply to uh, Writers in Paradise in the poetry department for that. It's like a chapbook of just very, like being at the food giveaway, the food pantry giveaway, or the thrift store, or kids at the library, just overheard conversations that really capture the feeling of the town. I love that. Yeah, and then then there's stuff like um, you know buying food, taking a walk, maybe seeing people. Um, pretty much, I don't think I would spend more than three or four hours a day writing. I'd feel good if I spent three or four hours, but um, when the winter comes, there's a lot of sitting in the window seat reading with a cup of cocoa, which is fine by me. Yeah, <laughs> and it's dark at four thirty. Um, we, we do have the little Boreal Community Theater that has Sunday afternoon music events. We do have events at the library occasionally. Um, and then I do a lot of reading for the for the column, the Atticus column, which is called A View from Maine. And I try to connect the dots in what I'm reading 
right now I started to read Catherine Ann Porter, who, whose stories I had never read because I heard a reference, I read a reference to her in another book I was reading. I thought, gosh, you know, she won a lot of prizes and her, she was totally out of fashion. And um, my gosh, she's really good. Um, have you ever read her by any chance? No, no, I haven't. But Maybe you've heard of her, Ship of Fools and Pale Horse, Pale Rider. Yes, anyway. yes. Yeah, so there's so many good female writers that are unappreciated or not read, you know, Muriel Spark and so many that we never read in college. They were never mentioned. No. You know, so, no. and, um, oh, Anne Beattie, I'm on an Anne Beattie kick. I don't know if you know her stories, but she has published a lot in the New Yorker, but she also lived in Key West and Maine and teaches at Charlottesville. So I feel like we have, and she's my generation. Um, so I've decided to try to figure out why she's so good. <laughs> I love so, that. Yeah, I'm looking really carefully. I just finished a book of her stories called The Onlookers about the it's six stories about people who were in Charlottesville at the time of those horrible riots. And it's six different, like a kaleidoscope perspectives. And she teaches there. So her stories are very quiet and very, there's a dark humor, but they're very detailed and very minimalist. But there's some, uh, there's also a lightness to them. So I'm trying to dissect it and find out why I like her, you know? <coughs> and, Seems like you could start a writer's group. I mean, even online um, of people that are living in small towns that don't have connections to, you know, Right now, I did think about that, but right now I am so happy not to be doing a lot of Zooms because- Oh, I get it. There's yeah. so much burnout from Zooms, like, is your audio on? And, you know, no, we can't see you. And, oh, your internet is going out. You know, there's so much around it that I find very stressful. And I would do it in person for sure uh, if yeah. I had enough people. I'm just so burnt out on long distance connections. Um, although during the pandemic, I have to say, I attended a lot of book signings that were great in bookstores all over the country because they had to do it that way. And so you were able to see authors at places that you normally wouldn't be able to, you know, so. Yeah, that's why I, this, when we first started doing um, typewriter talks during COVID, this was a Zoom chat where I would be like next to the writer that I was interviewing in <clears throat> video it's like I don't want to do video anymore like it's too like this feels like we're having a phone conversation and that's yeah and I'm in my robe and <laughs> you know <laughs> you don't you 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 don't have to like perform you can just yeah like, have exactly conversation and, and, yeah. and as an introvert uh, the podcast format is so much more um yes uh, and I have to tell you there was one person in the, in the, I had to do a lot of Zooms for AmeriCorps. There was one person, she was lovely, but she would eat during the Zoom and her computer was at a really bad angle. So you saw this teeth and these. Oh muffins. my God. That sounds like a short, that sounds like a oh, short story. It was story. horrible. It was horrible. <laughs> a short story or something. Well, it's funny because I, I was talking about even podcasts have become extroverted because people are videoing people talking for podcasts. And it's like, why can't we just have some introverted things? Why can't we have some like quieter, you know, like where, why does it have to be a video of, of the podcast now? So I exactly. Just, like, everything's yeah. trying to, everybody tries to move everything into the extroversion world. And it's like, yes, oh, yes. I refuse to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to create a, a whole little revolution around my introversion. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. 
why not right? introversion revolution I why love not that. yeah even like how we talk about that in the podcast that writers have to go out and like do all these things to promote their books and it's like oh my gosh Maureen, not you natural know. for us some no, people it's natural 30 but... or 40 years ago you you didn't even see their photographs in the new york times book review you know that you i you had no idea what they the looked mystery like mystery of it yeah. yeah yeah oh my gosh so and then Virginia yeah. Wolf doing a book tour. <laughs> I know, right? Oh my gosh, right? Oh, can you? Yeah, no, I, I no. Know. So tell us. Let's ask. I'm going to ask you another question. Okay. Um, what? How has your writing process changed over the years? Um, I think <laughs> it's funny that you ask because. I'm the, I, they say there are people who are planners and there are people who are pantsers, which is you yes. just sit down and you write and see how it goes. I've always been the latter. I write to find out. I have a general idea of where I'm going, but I, I want the excitement of not knowing exactly what's going to, you know. And I think I felt guilty about that. And I tried to change my stripes, you know. And I've come back to, after you read a lot of people who say, if that's what you are, go for it, you know, and, and there are people like um, uh, Andre Dubose, the third or whatever it is, who says he, he never plans, he doesn't believe in planning, you know, sit down and write it out. Of course, you do editing, you do rewriting. But so it's taken me many years to drop that guilt of why I don't like to make an outline and know exactly what's going to happen, you know, so so I'll tell but, you a secret, not really a secret, but if you've been listening to the typewriter talks, I think this is like number 21 or 20. Most writers that I've talked to, I would say 99% said they do not plot out either. So you're not alone. But it's like a dirty, dirty secret in a way too. You I don't, know. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I like that idea that you're trying to uncover something like you're a detective and maybe you hear a, a character's voice and you're like, right. oh. Tell me what this is about. I mean, I'm doing that with my father. He's like a literary character to me right now. Yes, that must be so exciting. It's yeah. pretty wild. I keep thinking I'm going to not do this, but I gave myself a year to do this and kind of uncover who he is. And and Maureen, you know, it's it's give yourself permission to feel a lot of emotions because that, I think reading Mary Carr and talking about it's... It, it's not going to be easy and, and you'll have a lot of ups and downs. It's a really big task to do what you're doing. Well, you know, I don't know. Really I have to do it. It's like the okay. only way I think I can grieve and process it. And they're just okay. like, letters. they're just yeah, letters but, I'm writing to him. And I don't have any, I'm pretty it might good. Take more than a year, Marina, you know? Oh, well, yeah. Well, that's just like the, the rough, like rough, yep. kind of like, you know, see how I'm, I'm just curious about like how the grieving process goes what I learned from it. And it is, it is that kind of go with the flow. Like, yep. let me see where this leads me. I don't yep. have other than the format of the letters and maybe like at least a year, I should say at least a year. I don't really have any other like expectations. I'm just, no, really I think it's really exciting because it can be anything you want it to be. It'll be about much more than your father, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And also like starving, you know, he was a starving artist in many ways. He was a, a, like a suppressed, he, what he wasn't, he didn't really follow through with a lot of his dreams. There's alcoholism. There's, there's so many things. He's a man of a certain generation, like father daughter relationships. Like there's so many things to unpack. So I'm really curious to see yep. where he is as the literary muse. So, and but, I just, I just read, ahead. um, somebody mentioned Kent 
Harif, whose novels you probably, um, anyway, he was, he wrote about the Midwest and uh, very delicate, deep novels about small town people. And someone mentioned him to me. So I was reading about him last night. And, you know, he went into a room and put, a, covered his eyes with a bandana and he wrote blind. And then he, he went back, did, did punctuation and other things, but he said that was the only way he could really submerge himself in what he was writing about. And I think that that's amazing to read. He said, it didn't matter. The first draft didn't have capitals or punctuation, but I had to get in the, in the flow of the character's emotions. And I yeah. thought that that was amazing. He did that for many books, actually. He won a lot of prizes too. <laughs> Plain Song is one of his um, most famous, I guess, but, but um, whatever works, whatever keeps you writing, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. I think in terms of my process again and again, I realized that the most important thing is not to pay attention to the voice in your head that says that you're not good or that this will never work or you'll never finish. Just that's the hardest thing, you know, just to push that away. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've gotten so many books on technique and style and structure and they're all helpful in a little, you know, there's a little bit here and a little bit there, but basically if you don't believe in yourself and you don't feel it's worth sitting on the chair and giving up on a better salary and a better way of life to do what you love, nothing will happen. So um, that's, a, that's at this point, I, I just say, this is what I want to do. And I, no matter what happens, this is what I want to do. And actually I had, I had a surprisingly nice thing happen with the, the girl pretending <clears throat> when Kirkus Reviews picked it as a, one of the best hundred indie debuts. Because when I first sent them the book, I, I expected a letter saying, thank you very much, but we're not really interested in this kind of thing. You know, I, was, I opened the letter and <laughs> it was one of those, my heart was pounding. And then, then I read the review and then a month later they said, we've picked it, you know, as one of the hundred best of the year. And so that keeps me going, you know? Yeah, well, I think that, um being a writer is like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> well, I feel so lucky yeah, because not being a writer. It's the, I mean, it's just the coolest thing. I think we never have to retire. You know, I'll never, no, be we don't. I'm yeah. never ever bored. Um, I feel really lucky in that regard. I do. I feel, and yeah. no matter what terrible things happen, yes, use it. You know, <laughs> it can right. be used. It's yeah. always fuel for, for our writing. Well, let's hear some of your writing. Okay, you're going to call my bluff. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I'm taking a risk because this is really first draft, but I'm kind of, I'm really excited about it. And um, it's the first chapter of my new novel. I have a second novel, which is now circulating, which I'm hoping something happens with, but this is my third, very much at the beginning. And the title right now is You as well. Because they say that in Maine rather than, you know, you say, have a nice day. They say, you too. No, they say you as well, which I just really like. There's something very archaic about it. And you you have to pause. You can't say that quickly. <laughs> you know, so you as well. So that's what the title is, you as well. <clears throat> Chapter one, June 2023. The sky over Manhattan was a dirty, opaque orange. People were being warned to stay indoors if at all possible. 
The air quality on a scale of one to apocalypse was definitely apocalypse plus. One could scarcely begin to imagine what things were like for the Canadians who were closer to the wildfires. In Bronwyn's part of Maine, the sky was just plain gray. It had been an unusually gray and chilly June, everyone said. Often, she was the only one out walking. The lilacs perfumed empty, cracked sidewalks. She felt pressure to appreciate them. Oh, captain, my captain, she mumbled to herself, putting one foot in front of the other on the uneven pavement in the dim twilight. But she couldn't recall most of the poem, only fragments. When lilacs last in the dooryard bloomed. Such a perfect string of perfect words. Dooryard. Even backwards. Dreyrud. Dooryard. Probably they'd stay mostly indoors. Caleb had texted just now that he'd be arriving in about 20 minutes, assuming the driver could find her house. Smiley face emoji. 50 years. Why? Why had she arranged this meeting? Why had he, so elusive all these years, doling out terse emails two or three times a year, agreed to come? Bronwyn paced from her home office to the living room and back, avoiding her reflection in any of the assortment of thrift store mirrors that reflected the soft main light and brought so much pleasure on most days, converting every wall and corner into her very own fleeting vermeers. Of course she knew why, because his wife had finally died. A purse or a nurse, isn't that what they said old men wanted? Not that she believed it of Caleb. Certainly a retired neuroanatomist didn't need money. But why had she invited him? Because he was, ha, the love of her life? Because she wanted to lie in the dark next to him, <clears throat> skin to skin, bury her face in his wrinkled neck, just absorb the warmth of his body, babbling until they were hoarse, just to have two unforgettable weeks to remember later when they were truly in their final years, dispersed to unknown cities in wheelchairs staring out at well-kept lawns. That would be enough. Or would it? Would he consider moving to Maine? In case her fantasies were one-sided, wouldn't be the first time, she'd put a stack of clean sheets, a pillow, and a towel on the futon in the living room. She'd take his lead. Whatever was supposed to happen would happen. Her phone pinged. Instinctively, she glanced at the nearest mirror. Silver hair, turquoise earrings, striped scarf. It would have to do. WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get. Welcome to my fixer-upper, welcome to my world. Bronwyn opened the bedroom door to the stair landing and began her steep descent down what had been most likely the maid's entrance in 1910 to greet the terrifying unknown on her weathered wooden doorstep. With every careful step, she wished she'd never set this meeting in motion. She was throwing a hand grenade into her harmless fantasies, scattering and splintering them into useless fragments. She'd never be able to wallow in them again. She'd have nothing. What a mistake. She opened her front door and there he was, paying the driver, just as tall, but even thinner, Jewish afro now replaced by a tonsure of wiry gray hair framing the high forehead that promised intelligence. Wire rimmed glasses slightly askew, just as she remembered. A green denim duffel bag with leather handles at his feet on her asphalt driveway. Black shirt, black jeans. Oh yes, there was no doubt. 
She was still madly attracted to him. He seemed to take hours fumbling with his credit card, plucking it out of a bulging brown leather wallet, poking at the little device hooked up to the driver's cell phone, apologizing, and finally putting the card back in his wallet, whose leather was so worn and cracked, it was more like a dream of leather, study for a giant Dali-esque canvas, memory of wallet. Bronwyn felt a pang of nostalgia for the Dali Museum back in her former hometown in Florida. And she didn't even really like surrealism. It was just her old habit of stepping back and framing reality when she was nervous, distancing herself. And she had never been so nervous in her life. Finally, he finished jamming the bulging wallet in his back pocket. Thanks for the ride and have a good afternoon. Caleb lingered by the open passenger window. You as well, replied the driver, grateful to be released and probably heading for a beer. His dented gray Toyota did not inspire confidence, but rides from the Bangor airport weren't easy to procure. Although it was only around three, Bronwyn could have used a beer herself. There was no alcohol in the house though. Living alone, it was too dangerous. She didn't want to become one of those women. Having a cat was enough. Maybe she should have bought a bottle of something red or white for Caleb. Too late. That's the excerpt for today. <laughs> oh my goodness. I love this. I'm so excited to hear the read it. When it comes out. <laughs> the suspense. What will happen? <laughs> I know, but it's so exciting. And I love the idea of like, love later in life and what does that look like and, and yeah and can you compatible or not and connecting loops connecting missed links can you do it you know is it worth trying no. um, yeah. what if a pregnant teenager turns up on your doorstep that night <laughs> goodness yeah so anyway Love i'm it. having i'm really having fun it's it's taking everything that i'm thinking about and framing it with characters it's not really happening that's which is what's exciting I can make happen whatever I want to make happen you know I know that's why being a writer is the best thing ever oh my god it's so fantastic we can do anything go anywhere it's the best yeah <laughs> Barbara thank you so very much you're welcome thank you Maureen I really yes. appreciate our continuing contact and I hope it continues forever for all oh, well I promise it will forever okay um, so thank you everyone for tuning in to this episode of Typewriter Talks. If you want to know about, more about Keep St. Pete Lit, you can go to keepstpetelit.org. And if you like what you've heard, please consider donating to help continue this programming. And until we see or not see, talk to you next week, I hope that you please read and write on. <laughs>